Okay, welcome back to the podcast. This is episode number 172 with my friend Erin Bush. Erin is a composer, a cellist, and a teacher, and she runs uh, a camp called the Young Women Composers Camp for uh, young women and non-binary identifying people who are between the ages of, I believe, uh, 13 and 25. Really serving a demographic age-wise, too, that I think is really important in terms of systemic issues uh, that we see sort of bear out later on in life. I met Aaron through a mutual friend who just said, you should meet Aaron, and I want you to take my advice. When a mutual friend tells you to meet somebody, do it. Reach out and say hello. So, ladies and gentlemen, Aaron Bush. I'm glad. Well, Aaron, I appreciate you uh, you doing this. Um, I know it's... You know, seemingly last. Well, not seemingly. It was last minute, and I appreciate you you doing this. But I, um, I wanted to pick your brain about a million things. But first of all, just to get to know you a little bit better, uh, or for folks that you know who might listen to this, get to know you a little bit better. But also to talk about your summer program that you started and that you've been running now for is this the fourth year or fifth year? Third this year. This is the third. Third year. Yeah. I'd love for you to the Young Women's Composers Camp, and I would love. I said that correctly. Young Women Composers Young camp. Women Composers Camp. Um, yeah. And I just wanted to talk I – I I've been fascinated by, by your work there for the last three years, and we've been collaborating a little bit at SOCI, and I would just love to pick your brain about that as well. But um, first and foremost, can you just tell me – like, talk to – tell me about Baby Aaron. What got Baby Aaron into playing? You're a cello player. Uh, you're yeah. a composer. Uh, you're a teacher. Um, you worked – we met through my friend Kim uh, Wilczewski, and – because you guys – you went to – you go to her church – her and my wife are really good friends. And so that's kind of the random way that we met was through the church, oddly. Um, and so I wonder, just take us back to baby Aaron and like get us up to where we are now. And then if we, if we get diverted there and we're at random tangents, so be it. So, so baby Aaron was also pretty musical. Mm -hmm. Um, my, my parents told me that they thought I'd either become a musician or a dancer because I was just like kind of always moving, always singing. Um, and those of, my friends and family who, who know me today are can say with confidence that I should not have gone the dancing route because I just like can't really support myself in physical space. Have you watched? Um, um, do you know what the, you you watch Seinfeld? Not really, actually. You know, there's a scene where a Elaine Bennis dances. Anyway, just Google Elaine Bennis dancing, and that's <laughs> that's what I envision. I mean, that's how I dance too, but it's how I envision you dancing when you describe it just now. <laughs> If you know 30 Rock, I'm more of like a Liz Lemon. That's okay. like my reference. Just like arms and joints going every which way when yeah, you dance. Yeah, they're super dorky, <laughs> but I love it. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, I started, uh, we always had a piano growing up in my house, and my dad is actually a huge classical music like buff. Hmm. Um, and like random stuff too, like not just like listening to Beethoven all the time. Um, like he loves listening to like a lot of Russian composers. Hmm. And so we always had just music in the house growing up. And so it was kind of a natural progression for me to just like kind of be playing around with the piano. And they got me started on lessons when I was, I think, five. Hmm. So so pretty young. Um, and it was not too long after I started cello when I was eight um, in fourth grade. And it was around that time I started composing. I wasn't really thinking too much about it as most kids do. You just are like, hey, I wrote this piece. It's not like... I've become a composer. You know, I want to stop you for really two, like seconds. Most, two seconds. Most, sorry. Um, sorry um, are you, am I, are you hearing an echo? Oh, we're better now. Um, sorry. We're better. I was hearing myself for two seconds. 
technology. It's great. Okay. Um, the I just want to make sure there wasn't a third person in the room sort of chiming in on your behalf. And it, no. I was like, man, that person sounds a lot like me. Um, I just want to stop. Sorry to interrupt, but most kids don't compose music sort of unwittingly or unknowingly at that young of an age. I didn't even know that like you could create something new at that age. Like I, I just grew up and I was just like, well, everything that's here must have always been here, including all yeah. of the music and cute Weezer and Pearl Jam. They were all here and they just, somebody picked the apple off the tree, right. you know? So like what, what right. got, how did you, why in the hell did you compose something at such a young age? What spurred you on to do that? I, it's hard to like put a finger on it because I, I was so young. I wasn't, I don't remember what I was thinking about. I do remember, um, I, I've always had a good ear. It actually got in my way a lot as a kid because I didn't, I didn't learn how to sight read very well for like a long time. I really mm-hmm. only buckled down in high school because I would just be able to get by with my ear. I remember I would just make my piano teacher play the piece I was supposed to learn. And then I would just like listen and play it back. And she'd be like, Oh, that's great. But like, I wasn't reading. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think where I really started, um, I've always been a huge Disney fan. I'm still Mm -hmm. a huge Disney fan and I would try and play the songs I heard in the movies Mm -hmm. on the piano. And I think from there, it was kind of just a natural outgrowth to like making up my own stuff that was kind of tangentially related. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I can still remember my first piece. It was called the mysterious Island. (laughs) I love those first piece titles are always like, you know, like my love, disappears in the mist or something yeah, <laughs> something like, very very romantic sounding <laughs> yeah it's some like eight-year-old angst <laughs> a diamond in the rough <laughs> yeah. i am not who you think i am <laughs> yeah <laughs> i'm an eight-year-old yeah, damn it <laughs> <laughs> yeah so that was where it started and then my piano teacher um really encouraged me to keep going and i would just like i mostly wrote for piano for a long time mm. even though i was also playing cello which i think kind of makes sense because on the piano it's a lot more easy to improvise than it is on the cello you can like improvise harmonies there are shapes that you can be familiar with that it's uh, kind of easier to displace how did you Um, how did you as a young player distinguish i mean i have a hard time now at 41 distinguishing like being able to like play marimba right that's hard enough as it is you hit a key and you're not really responsible for the pitch that comes i mean you are whether it's a c or c sharp but if that c or c sharp is slightly sharp or slightly slightly flat it's the piano tuner's fault, not your fault. Right. But on right. the cello, yeah. it's all your fault. And you're playing a microtonal instrument at age eight. Like, right. yeah. what that had to have contributed. I mean, the fact that you have a good ear, that must have sort of fed into it. So, I mean, I didn't deal with microtonal instruments until I got into middle school, and it was with the timpani, you know. And yeah. nobody yeah. told me that there was somebody's just like, tune a C. I'm like, cool, where's the C? They're like, well, it's one of one million positions on that pedal. Yeah. There's only one of the hundreds of thousands on that pedal spectrum. That is a C. Good luck finding it. You fifth yeah, gra- right. you fifth grader, you know, like so <laughs> for you like did you did you struggle with that at all or were you just sort of a, a savant at that? I was definitely not a savant. I mean, I I my ear helped me to find the notes. Mm-hmm. Um you know, kids with I have perfect pitch, so kids with perfect pitch, uh, it's like you know when you're wrong, but it doesn't mean that you're never wrong. Right, right. So it's because it, it's a, it's a, it's just still a physical learning mm. experience, and I was not a very dedicated practicer mm. until like midway through my undergrad, to be perfectly honest with you. So, like, even though I knew I was out of tune, um, I wasn't really working on my ear because mm. because I I had such a good ear, which is also kind of I, I hate to say it, it is kind of like a curse of perfect pitch because it made me kind of arrogant. I think as a kid, because I'm like, I know this is a C, but I wasn't really concerned with like you said the microtonal like varieties and mm. how 
intonation can actually be very expressive, right, which is right. one of the things I love about playing a string instrument. Like playing slightly flat or slightly sharp on, right. like if you're playing a major third, like sitting on the front half of that pitch just a hair because most thirds on a piano, like your ear's been trained to hear a third slightly detuned, just slightly, right, right, and right. just sit, just nudging your finger just a scooch makes that third sort yeah. of really shimmer. Same with a fifth and a fourth and all that shit. But that's not yeah. something. People don't talk pitch uh, talk about pitch as being relative unless you're using extreme vibrato. Then you're just going like around the pitch. <laughs> but right. you know. it's so it's so interesting though how yeah. it can be. Like I didn't really start thinking about that until I was really playing chamber music mm-hmm. in college, and I had to you know tune a chord with a string quartet. And there's just like even moving your your finger a tiny inch can really just make the chord blossom, mm-hmm. and you really feel it too. And so that was fascinating to me. And that was around the time that I started really practicing a lot more, you know, a couple hours a day. Whereas before I was like 20, 30 minutes a day. Right. I, I think anybody yeah. who's a professional musician, I'll maybe just keep it to music. Well, I don't want to say anybody. Most people I know sort of, whether it happened late in their their studies or early, like for me, it was definitely like similar track to you. Like I got into college and I'm like, my parents aren't here. And you mean I can stay up with girls till four in the morning in the dorm? Yeah. Like <laughs> that's amazing. And I just was like, why would I ever practice? I'm good, yeah. you know, and then about right, sophomore, right. end of my sophomore year, I'm like, I'm really tired and I'm not any good at any of these instruments. What have I been doing for the last two years? Yeah. You know? And so I, then I decided my junior year to sort of crack down and go for it. But yeah, you know, I think it it's a sim- similar path. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was around the time I really started hanging out with a lot of performance majors and mm. I would you know, be like, Hey, you want to get dinner? And they're like, Oh, I'll get dinner. But then I have to go practice, you know, for a couple hours after and I'd be like, should I be doing that? You're like, yeah, yeah, totally. I was going to do the same thing just at home yeah. in bed oh, yeah, with Netflix too. on. That's what I was going to do. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, I started getting really close to a lot of performers and I actually still feel like up until the last couple of years, I've, I felt more like in the performer sector in a lot of ways, mm. um, just because composition can be so isolating. Um, and I didn't really either from, I think partially maybe my own, not like making efforts to get close to other composers and also just the nature Mm -hmm. of being in a composition department, unless there's like active ways to push you together, you might not spend much time together. Um, that's a real, that's a real bummer of, I mean, I think any, any, I mean, whether you study composition in high school, I mean, there are some high schools, my high school had a music theory class you could take and I was definitely not, not, not uh, advanced enough to take it when I was in high school. And, but even then, it was like the you. If you were a composer, you were slightly you were segregated off into another. You were like sequestered in another room yeah. in a cave to sort of divine your inspiration. And there was no attempt made. And then same from the performer side, there was no attempt. Composers lived in caves. We didn't. You know, we got the music in the mail. That's the way it was. Right. And it's been a big reaction. Big. That's one of big So's big sort of mission pushbacks over the last twenty years is to be like. I mean. That's one way you can do it, but we far prefer to work with one composer over a very long period of time and right. really know, like, does that composer like red wine or white wine, or do they not drink? Yeah. Do they like to smoke a cigar, or do they oppose? Like, all of these things, it's, like, interesting to find out about a composer and learn about yeah. them in, in person, and that's something none of us, very few of us, got in school. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not really built into the model. I think mm-hmm. a lot of, there's there's kind of been a shift into, um, over the last, like, couple hundred years, the composer is, like, on a pedestal. Mm-hmm. And so you're right. They are like given times, just like go write on your own and then send me the score when it's done. When in fact, like that historically is kind of recent because composers would be generally also performers and they'd be within that community working with people, testing things out. Um, so I'm 
really glad to have found that that's like part of it because that wasn't clear to me at first. It wasn't clear to me too. And, and I, you know, I had these, it wasn't until grad school where I, I had, a, I took a class at Yale and there was a, a it was, I would have called it ear training in my, it was called ear training in my undergrad. She called it hearing. That was the, uh, she was very adamant. This is not ear training. We are, you need to learn how to hear things and listen. And, I love that. Yeah, it was awesome. Her name is Joan Panetti. She was a total badass. One of the best teachers I've ever had in my entire life. And awesome. we were listening to quartet for the end of time. I've told the story a million times in this podcast. So I hope whatever, I think it's a good one. And she, we, she asked, she's like, who here has heard this piece? And everybody raised their hand except for me. I didn't, I'd never heard it. I got all the way to Yale having never heard Messian. Like in any real way, I think I heard the like beep 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 beep, beep like the little bird call thing. Birds. Yeah, that's it. You know, yeah. um, that's what I knew of him was the bird call thing. And um, she was like, "You've never heard this piece," and I said, "No." And she's like, "After class, come see me." And I was like, "Oh shit!" She took me. She took. She took me to her. Well, it turns out she studied with Messian when she was in, in college. Worked with him. She was an amazing piano player. She sat down. We put on a record in her office and listened to the entirety of Quartet for the End of Time while she just sat there going, "Ooh, ooh, here's the good part." Like poking me, and she's like, "This is the part. This is the part." Like at the end of, you know, they're in a concentration camp. She's like, "You know, he wrote this in a concentration camp." I was like, "I didn't know. I had no idea. I didn't really know much about World War II history." I was like, "What? I mean, I know about like what? What? Tell me more." And she just like laid out, she's like, she was telling me these stories that he told her. Wow. And I was like, oh yeah, Messian isn't this like, this Messianic figure. I mean, he's literally a Messianic right. figure, but he's, he's not this God-like, Jesus-like figure that, that we just listen, we glean all the information from him and he's never wrong. He's a person reacting to his environment. Yeah, and I'm sorry. No, no, no. Just to say that, like, I, I wish we, like, if we could have looked at Bach as like somebody who also like he did all these things, but he also had a gig. He had to write a new mass every Sunday and he had 23 kids. Yeah. So like, like, I don't know, Aaron, I don't have any children, but like, we know, like we know people who have children who have like one or two and you're like 23, like what kind of person must he have been to be able to do all this stuff? So I like to think of these people as humans. So I, I, and I think, I, I think this does relate to maybe perhaps maybe I'm projecting, that your reaction to this sort of studies might have been something that prompted you. I'm feeding you an answer. Why don't I ask you what prompted you to start your summer festival? I don't mean to jump over any sort of baby Aaron trajectory here, but what is that? What prompted you to start this summer festival? Well, first I want to say to you that it, how wonderful that you had that, that great teacher who really took the time to like work with you on that piece. Mm. Cause that's such a beautiful thing. And it clearly made a real impact on you. Yeah. Um, and so it kind of related to, to the camp. I mean, first of all, I grew up as, you know, a young composer, very young when I started out and it was a different world. The internet was like still kind of nascent. And so I, I wasn't trying to like Google festivals or anything mm -hmm. like I think a lot of students are now. Yeah. Um, but there were some local things that I would do uh, as I was getting older, like competitions and, and submitting my piece to, uh, you know, for readings and things. And I was always the only girl there, you know, among legacy of other, you know, teenage boys, essentially. And mm -hmm. I started to just notice it, you know, once you... I don't think I realized it at first. And after you notice it, you can't stop seeing it everywhere. And it made me then look at the name that was on my sheet music that I was playing. And it was always a man, generally a, a dead man. Um, and so that kind of, you know, the seed of doubt was now blooming. And, and well, what I, was the doubt? Like what, what made you, uh, I'm, I'm asking, I'm sort of asking the dumb questions. So please don't try not to read any agenda behind what I'm asking, but like, why, why was it bothersome to you to be in a room where you felt like 
where you realized, like you noticed it, right? You said that you noticed just the, the, the most obvious thing in the room is that you're a girl and the rest of the people in the room are young mm-hmm. males. Like what, what was it that bothered you? Why did that bother you? Other than just the stark reality of the truth. Like it's just a data point that's true. Why did that bother you? What it, so it didn't bother me be, to work with other men because I, you know, I had a lot of friends who were, who were boys and I, mm-hmm. I didn't mind, you know, sharing my music in front of them. It bothered me because it seemed like the music scene was not making a space for people like mm. me. And it, it seemed like I wasn't really going to be supported if I chose to go further. Um, maybe there wasn't, there weren't channels for me to pursue mm. what I wanted to do. Um, so that's when I started to maybe consider a music education degree instead of, um, cause I, I love educating kids and, mm. and I, I love working with kids, adults, everything. Um, but I never really thought too much about a music ed degree just cause I knew I didn't want to do public school teaching. Mm. Um, but around my junior, senior year, I knew I wanted to be a composer in whatever way that meant to me as like a 16 year old. Um, but I just didn't really see the path forward. Um, and so I ended up applying, you know, my, my parents are like, why don't you just apply? And if you don't get in, then we'll work it out. Mm -hmm. Um, and I got in, so I didn't have to worry about it too much. But then when I got to temple, I was the only girl in the whole undergraduate composition program. Mm -hmm. There were like, I think it was relatively small, but still there were like 12. When was this? I'm sorry. When was this? This was 2009. Okay. And I know it, it, they've definitely diversified since then. Mm -hmm. Um, but I remember talking with my teacher about it as a freshman saying like, I thought that there'd be like some more women here for me to be friends with. And he's like, well, you know, we'd love to accept more women, but we just like don't get applications. Mm. Um, so that really stuck with me over the years that it's, it's a pipeline issue. It's yeah. a representation issue. And that's like feeding into the pipeline problems. So right. when I felt like I was able to really think about what to do about this problem, um, you know, this is when I was adjuncting that at Temple in 2015, I guess, 2016. Mm-hmm. Um, I really started thinking about how to do something to, to prevent this from happening to the next generation. And so that's when I came up with the idea of the camp. Um, I think there are a lot of people, a lot of organizations who are trying to fix the representation issue, which is really important. Um, and is also a quicker fix because you can just like program it in next season. You can just like, okay, we're going to make this more diverse. We're going to start programming women, but that doesn't really help the problem of getting young composers to understand. We know that there's a problem and we're going to give you the extra tools that you need in order to start your journey because that takes a long time to fix. So that's when I wanted to do something like education based. Um, so I started thinking about the camp in, oh, it was 2017. Um, so it was about a year and a half before it actually launched in the summer of 2018. Well, I, I want to, I, I don't mean to interrupt, but I, I do want to just sort of put a pin in two different approaches here that I feel like I'm, a, and please, please, please correct me if I'm, if I'm misidentifying anything you just said or misrepresenting anything you just said. Mm-hmm. There's a million ways to approach the diversity or any, any issue, whether it be diversity or racism or any, anything, you know, you want to have greener grass in your neighborhood like there's a million ways to go about those issues right um and one i think is the sort of dealing with programming and things that are sort of if you're on the spectrum of like root to the the limbs of the tree you know there's that seems to be farther closer to where the the blooming of the the leaves are happening we're going to program stuff here and i think that's important but i do want to highlight mm-hmm. that i the, one of the reasons i want to talk to you is that i do f- get a sense 
and again, my feelings aren't proof of anything, but my my sense is that there's a lot of effort towards the back end of the that spectrum, which I which I get, yeah. I, I totally empathize and understand because it, it's it's not I don't want to say it's easier because it's not easy, but it's the answers are a little clearer. You can be like, oh, boom, plug that box, boom, great, ah, oh, look, we've we've done okay. the thing. But right. you're taking a tact. The other tact is to be like, this is going to be a 15 or 20 year thing. Like it's, it's going to, I mean, a lot of your students aren't going to graduate from college, at least for another decade. You know, some of these, some of your students are like, what, 13, 14 years old. Yeah. On the younger, on the younger side. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's, it's definitely a long game. <laughs> and I, I just want to say that like, I, I, I'm, I, I don't I think if I had my druthers, I would advocate more towards your side of the, 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 the approach, because I do think that that's the, like that when people say systemic, that implies there's a root or that it's buried deep and it's growing deep. And so I'm very hesitant. It's like, okay, great. If there's a systemic problem, let's get down and regraft on some new roots onto the, the old system and sort of, it's like, you know, you can, you can do that with grapevines from Italy. They graft a little sliver off and bring it over here and grow a new thing, you know? And it's the exact same thing, except with this problem, I just want to say, I, I'm sorry, this is a very long-winded way to say that I appreciate that it seems to me that you're really taking the approach of like, rather than looking up, being like, nope, I'm going to burrow down deep and plant all of these students down in here and hope to see them in 10 years. Right. I mean, you do need both sides because you're right. That is definitely our approach. We're playing the long game. We're trying to like get students to get interested in composition mm-hmm. early and see that there are pathways for them to succeed. But at the same time, we do also still need increased representation in the immediate time. But the problem is with representation, when you are looking for people to program, you are picking from the composers who made it, mm. who were able to like get through that, you know, the pipeline didn't really um, prevent them from ascending for whatever reason. Maybe they had a mentor who helped them or they just got, got lucky along the way. Um, but what I'm concerned about is all the people who didn't make it that far, who mm-hmm. got discouraged or weren't given the tools that they needed or the opportunities. Um, so I'm trying to kind of level the playing field at stage one. Well, can I and ask- then if composers don't want to go on, then they don't have to. Right. But if they do, then they're able to have that foundation. Yeah, we always tell the associate students or any students of mine that I'm like, I, you know, I just need to be clear with you. I do not have any interest in whether like I don't have a desire for all of you to become professional steel drummers. Right, like right. that's not my goal. And if you, if exactly. that's what you want of me, I, I'm here to tell you, I cannot make it happen. I can barely make it happen for myself, <laughs> let alone, <laughs> let alone you. Yeah. So what I want you to learn is like the basic skill set that you can then apply to any other human activity, like right. cooperation, working together, seeing a problem, dealing with friction in the room, dealing with somebody who thinks differently than you. Maybe you're not a religious person yet. The person beside you is wearing a cross around their neck and that it freaks you out. Like, I'm sorry. That's what it means to be in the room. And let's talk. Let's, yeah. let's just, let's, let's deal with that. You know? Um, well, what can I ask you? What was your, when you, so I have my, my experiences from the first SOCI that we did where I just, you know, we were like, it's not real, right? we got these applications. All of a sudden cars started pulling up and I about had a panic attack. Cause it was like, these people are here. What the yeah. hell have I done? <laughs> oh my God, we're going to get sued. I don't have a plan for the next hour and a half of what's about to happen, you know, for you. Like what you're, I think I might've been at the first year. I think I came through Missy. Missy yeah. was there. I dropped in and we talked about percussion. I watched Missy, Missy's lecture. What was the, what were your sort of highs and lows? If you don't mind sharing of your first festival where you were like, that was a huge success. And then the other thing you we were like, um, I should just hang it all up. <laughs> like, like what were your massive failures and what were your successes? I mean, I really think that 
I mean, you're so right that it is just crazy to be like, oh, there are real people who are like doing the thing that like I thought of and just like wrote in a spreadsheet. And now it's like in the universe. Yeah, your crazy. Google Doc put a person in the room, you know, and that's a, that's a weird thing. You should see how many spreadsheets I have. Right? Yeah, I'm with you. Um, but I honestly, I feel like the first year was was pretty successful. Um, we we had, I think one thing that I kind of realized is I, I might have overscheduled a little bit. And I, I um, this year, we really, you know, paired things back because we were online. And I actually think it worked a little better, like a little bit of a less is more kind of model. Um, and... I think another thing I realized is I tried to kind of do everything my first year. You by yourself. And I still struggle to not do everything. Um, but I was so exhausted <laughs> the first year. Um, you know, we, we only hired one chaperone and we had 10 students. And so we kind of fixed that the next year. We're like, we need two people because they have to be, you know, with minors, they need to be accompanied at right, all times. Right. So I ended up doing a lot of that. Um, so that was probably the biggest takeaway of like, I can't, I need to like hire some more people. Um, and how did that go? I mean, but it's, so it's, it's one thing to recognize that as somebody who has, I fall victim to that every day. There's still things I have a hard time letting people claw from my hands, you know, what it's one thing to say that out loud and acknowledge it, but then it's another thing to actually give that responsibility to another person. Like, can you, did you have anxiety about that? Yeah, I still I still struggle with it. I think it's not a natural thing for me. Um, I I think I can be kind of a control freak, and I recognize that. And I'm trying to, you know, all, I think that's a lifelong journey for me is like relinquishing control, <laughs> um, especially for like a camp that was coming out of my brain. Um, but every year it's been a little bit of like a tester. Like this year we had our first intern who's mm. been helping a lot with social media and just like nuts and bolts stuff. Yeah that I don't have to personally do, but that was still a transition. I was like, Oh, I don't actually have to do like this test session. Like I can, you know, delegate that to her. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's been, it's been gradual, which I think has helped me to recognize like these are the areas where I am actually needed. And these are the areas that I don't need to personally be there. Yeah. It's tricky. I, for me, it's the, I, I, maybe it's just my dad. My, 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 my dad was a very much a, like, I mean, I grew up in a pretty conservative household, um, not super religious, but it was, uh, the pull up, pull yourself up by your bootstraps was, it, it wasn't exactly that. My, my dad was a very caring man, like didn't want anybody to suffer or have any harm, but, but he was a very much a, like, before you depend on anybody else, l- make sure you're, you are actually yeah. pulling your own. I think that was more the approach. Make sure you are actually tapping into your full potential before you go and ask somebody else for help. And that, to me, that's been a bit like that helps me sometimes because I don't realize how often I am just copping out because I'm lazy or tired, <laughs> you know, for me personally. But um, but it, I think for me as a 41 year old, it's now manifesting in itself where I realize it's like I just if it fails, I want it to be my fault. I don't want somebody else to have to take the yeah. blame for the for yeah. some idea I had and have it go down in right. flames. You know, I just want right. I'd rather have the responsibility. And that's not a healthy that's not a healthy way to <laughs> go through life necessarily. But yeah. It's how I do sometimes, you know? Right. Yeah. I think it will be, I, I'm, I'm hopeful that as the camp continues to grow and expand, we will also have um, more assets that then we can give to, you know, maybe some more subsidiary positions that will then help me to not be as involved in the like nuts and bolts of every day. Mm. 
Um, so it's it's a long game with that too. Well, just how more sustainable? How has so? Can you tell me a little bit about so for someone who's maybe listening to this and is like, you know, you said young woman composers camp up front. I'm a young woman, or I'm uh, you know a young person who's non-binary. What what what's the application process like? What are you looking for in a student? Um, right. It's called young woman composers camp, but like being a, a young woman or somebody who's non-binary, it's like that's one of the things. What are the other things you're looking for in a composer if they want to apply? So we actually mostly are looking at their their essays and the reason that they're applying and the reason that they want to come. Career mm-hmm. goals, maybe they don't have access to these kinds of um, educational uh, opportunities where they're from. We, you know, we've had a bunch of students from very rural areas of the country who are just like, there's literally no music program mm. by me. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're not necessarily looking for compositional experience or, um, you know, we don't require them to send in a piece. So mm. we have some students every year who have never written a piece before. So if wow, they are okay. someone who wants to get into composing, they still have to submit something. But um, it doesn't have to be a piece. It can be, you know, maybe they improvise at the piano just casually. They can send that in. Um, maybe they've done no improv or composition at all, but they are really good at the violin. So they can send in a video of themselves playing violin. Or they can send in, um, some students send in like a video essay of themselves being like, this is why I really want this opportunity. And so that's really more what we're looking for. So every year we get a really diverse cohort of just experience with composition. So mm-hmm especially this year when we were opening it up to undergraduate students, some of which who were, um, or some of whom were composition students at a university. So we had people who had a good amount of experience, maybe written for, you know, multiple chamber or orchestra ensembles. And then we have some students in high school who have never composed a piece before. And my first year I was really concerned. Like, I hope this doesn't turn into like a weird, like sect. Like yeah. I don't want to have clicks. Right. right. I, I like, I'm worried about students like being like, Oh, you don't know this. Like, Oh, wow. yeah, I mean, bu- I mean, bullying or peer <laughs> pressure is a thing. I, I, again, all of that stuff is on a spectrum and I've been, I mean, if we're going to talk about bullying on a spectrum, I mean, I've been bullied by colleagues in my, my field because I don't know something yeah. about some obscure reference about, you know, uh, right. you know, Boulez so or something, you know, like what, what, what are we doing? You know, it's so messed up because like, if you don't know something like it's, probably an opportunity, like uh, an opportunity gap, right? So our students, and and I have to say, those worries were totally without reason because we have had the most supportive cohorts. I was just, we had our first concert of two concerts um, yesterday, uh, Wednesday the 29th. Mm -hmm. And it was so amazing because we had a running chat we had like a watch party with the members of the students of this year and every piece that was played they were like oh this is so great Woo! like great i love this section and you know just really engaging yeah. in the moment which is one of the beautiful things about it being online and you know i just am like blown away by how like they're just constantly affirming each other lifting each other up um if someone's like i really don't know this they're like oh check this out this link out or like i'll meet with you afterwards and talk to you about this. Like they're, they're really, really supportive of each other. And so that's been one of the most rewarding things for me to, to witness. Yeah. I got to say there's a, I mean, I, I go back and forth. I mean, I'm, I'm on social media or at least I'm creeping on social media more than I should. And that gives me a perception. I think that I have a, I have a misplaced perception. I think of the way other generations communicate with each other, including my own. And I'm sort of disheartened. I often find myself disheartened at the way, like, oh, my God, we're never going to be able to figure this out. 
we're constantly at each other's throats. No one's supportive. Nobody cares about anybody else. And then, and I think that's mainly just a faction of like the comment threads on social media. Because again, when I, like we did a similar live stream thing of all of our pieces from Sosi, same exact thing. Like yeah. everybody's online, like, Oh my God, it's like you've given somebody the dead sea scrolls every time they hear a piece, you know, like yeah. it was just <laughs> like, like you got, here's a hoverboard. I found one, you know, and everybody's like, Oh my God, a hoverboard, you know, they're just constantly yeah, yeah. out over the moon. And so I, I'm having a hard time with that dissonance because it's like, in one hand, it's most of the world is screaming and yelling at each other, except if we just put people in this other context, it can, everybody also has the capability of being uber supportive. And so I just feel like if the whole world was constantly in a composition festival, maybe we'd be nicer to each other. <laughs> I think it's about like opting into a community, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Like within those communities, everyone who's there really wants to be That's there true. and are just like, just happy to be there. And so like when you find your community, you are just going to radiate positivity and that's going to come back to you too. Well, how have you, how have, now that you're three years in, um, you know, what are some of the struggles or what are the things you've noticed? I don't want to say struggle, but what are the things you've noticed in terms of just generational shifts or attitudinal shifts? I've, I've sensed from, you know, 10 years ago to Sosie now in the 12th year, it's not like there's a huge swing of the needle to like all of a sudden now everybody wants to do like non-timed p- or pieces with stopwatches. Nobody wants to play hocketing rhythms anymore, but there's this, there are subtle sort of, shifts in sort of the way people talk about music, the way people perceive music. I'm just kind of curious from your end, are, is there any, are you witnessing any conversations where you're like, that's fascinating to watch that sort of, the, the winds sort of push this conversation this direction? Kind of. I mean, probably less specifically in a musical context. One thing I have kind of noticed musically is that um, there's more like political like more politics within the music that's being created, mm-hmm. whether it's overt or not, right. um, you know, whether it's a piece about like, this is my response to climate change or whether it's a piece that uses fixed media of like Trump tweets, you know, there's, there's kind of a spectrum, but I have noticed that our students tend to be pretty politically aware in mm-hmm. general. And that seeps into the music that they create. Um, and then I forget what I was going to say. I was gonna, I, I, while you're thinking about that, I agree. I mean, there's a there's a part of me that, you know, I'm of a generation, you know, my mom, my every, every time, you know, growing up, she's like, do not talk about politics or religion with anybody. Like, you're never going to change anybody's mind. And there's a part of me that's like, now that I'm 41, I agree with her. But I still find myself, like, I've never changed anybody's mind on any of that stuff. I mean, try to try to picture when the last time you had a, a fruitful conversation about politics or religion with somebody, and it and it, you walked right. out of it feeling like, well, I I actually did did good there. Like, I think that that's like a miss. I think that that is like such a short term way of, of looking about it and looking at it though, because that's the way it feels. But mm-hmm. I don't think that that's the reality. Because like, if you think about it, those are like really personal, like moral compass things mm-hmm. that take a long time to change. And I think that those conversations and experiences with art can plant seeds that over time then grow to a change in perception. Yeah. Well, I, um, I'm agreeing with you. I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm saying I, I'm checking my own bullshit here a little bit because I, you know, I'm of a generation where like that was, it wasn't an overt thing to avoid it, but I, I had enough bad experiences talking about politics and also playing in different towns, like playing in LA and then flying to Ada, Oklahoma and playing a show there. Like, mm-hmm. The reality is, is like not every politics and religion are on a spectrum too, and how people react or see, th- and not everybody's on fixed on one part of that spectrum. 
forever. You know, there may be one part here and you're just left to center on most everything. And then for some reason on abortion, you're like, no, I actually just can't see it. It's killing a baby. You know, like nobody's clean on that stuff. And so I've always, I've always just felt like I wanted to on stage for me personally. I, before I get to politics or religion, I really just want people to like me and trust me because I, if I have then those hard conversations later for me, it's an easier conversation to have for me that doesn't, I'm not advocating that everybody needs to have, have that same conversation the same way I'm having it. But it has been interesting. I have a little like, um, like 30, 30 some odd things to think about when running your business, sort of like, here's like, don't complain about the food, be on time, like stupid shit like that. One of them is don't talk about religion or politics from the stage. That's my own personal, my own personal, like, I just am not going to, no matter what I feel, I don't think it's a mystery, my feelings on Donald Trump, but I'm not going to get on stage at Carnegie Hall and give a big old rant as to personally why, why I think we need to vote for Joe Biden or whatever. Like, I don't know. It's hard for me to explain why I just have really avoided that like the plague, but I'm noticing a lot of students just have no fear of that. And it's, it's interesting to me. I I don't think it's bad. It's just interesting to me to be like, well, that's, there are generational divides between me and my parents. And so it's, it's like, well, this stands to reason that there would be a generation below me that would just see things slightly differently. And I'm becoming more okay with that, but it's been hard. It's really hard for me to like have a student who has an overtly political piece. And I'm like, you, you just, you could play this in my hometown. You have the right to, and you absolutely should from an artistic standpoint. But if, but, but you're going to piss off everybody in that room and you can be okay with that. You yeah, just need to know that that's what's going to happen. You can't pretend right. the problem I have a lot of with is these, these political discussions is like, you've never spoken to someone who disagrees with you. Have you yeah. <laughs> like that's, I agree with, I think your stance is okay, but you, you need to understand not everybody sees things the same way. And that's, that's the thing I think I just have a hard time like engaging with, with art, but. I think it's the awareness thing. I think that's where you're you're hitting on it because you have to know that if you're writing something that's political or religious or like any kind of out of the ordinary presentation wise thing in it's it's going to make an effect on a lot of the people in the audience. So you just have to know that that might happen. Like for example, actually we had a student this year who wrote a really great piece for, for female singers and performed it at her university Mm -hmm. Um, and she said that she had seen many men perform topless there without giving a warning. And so she decided to have all the women perform topless Mm -hmm. and not provide a a warning to anyone in the audience. Mm. And she said it was kind of an incredible, I mean, I listened to the piece totally gorgeous. And she said the response from the audience was like, they either loved it or they hated it, but no matter how they felt, they had to tell her that they felt that way. They like really felt called to talk to her about it. And I think that's really an interesting thing mm. because you're you're reacting so strongly to something and you need to just like make your opinion heard. Um, and I, I don't know. I just, first of all, I'm like, you are way more bold than I would ever be. Like, I, would, I would say the same thing. Wow. You are braver than me. Yeah. <laughs> I put um, a lot of weird stuff on stage, but I, I just, you know, nudity is, Yeah. I mean, we did, we did a thing with, uh, you know, Shen Wei, the choreographer. No, I don't. Um, you think he's Chinese, but he has, he did this big thing in the park Avenue armory and it was all these dancers in these little cubes, glass cubes. And they were filled with like human hair and like all this weird stuff. And all of the dancers were nude men, women mm-hmm. completely nude. And there, you know, a lot of the reviews about it were 
yes, the the female or the the not the female form, but the human form is beautiful. But also, don't expect to do a show with forty five naked people writhing in human hair and not have people just looking at naked bodies. Like that's a huge thing. Like it's not. Mm-hmm. Don't expect us not to comment on it. I guess is the point. Like what do you? Yeah. What are you? What are you asking of us here? Like we are we just supposed to ignore this and talk about the beauty of human hair flowing over skin? Like. These are 45 beautifully naked people, like the right. best human specimens you can find on all diverse, like different shapes and sizes. But like you made the choice for them to be nude. And again, totally valid choice. But don't expect people not to have a reaction, you know, like sure. um, anyway. But but all that is to say, like your student, it's good that your student is having those experiences, I get is what I'm saying. And me as a 41 year old teacher, I'm trying to figure out how to like enable someone to have that and have it be an educational experience and not say what I, what my irrational side of me says, which is don't talk politics or religion from the stage. You know, that's like, that's Papa Josh saying like, I just don't want you to get, I don't want you to be, I don't want somebody to yell at you. I don't want you to have a bad night. I want people to love your music. I want all of those things. And I don't want them to hate you because they think you voted for Hillary, you know, like, or something, something (laughs) like that's, that's my worst nightmare is that somebody doesn't come hear your piece because they know you're a Democrat, you know, or something like that. Yeah, I think it actually reminds me of this thing my mom used to say to me, which is um, I used to want to get a nose ring. And she's like, if you get a nose ring, that's the only thing they're going to notice about your face. Mm. And I wonder if it's the same thing about like a piece of music that maybe has these other elements like nudity or or Mm. religious spin is like, do you want that to be the takeaway? Because for some people it will be. And I think as long as you're aware of that as a composer, that for some people that is going to be what they're, what they're getting out of it, Mm -hmm. go for it. Because at the end of the day, who are you composing for? If not for like your own expression. Right. I mean, you can't, I mean, you can go back through history and look at artists who have done, I mean, Robert Maplethorpe, you can look at many different artists who the government tried to censor (laughs) for making art. It's like, I am by no means telling anybody they should ever censor themselves, but you know, you also need to, in, in, at the same time, be able to look around a room and understand why the reactions are coming at you the way they're coming at you. Mm-hmm. Um, and try to empathize yeah. a little bit as an artist, try to empathize with why somebody might have that reaction. And for me, the empathy on that's on both sides is so that those people want to come back and see your stuff later. Like, mm-hmm. like they may not like your art, but I want them to like you. And if they like you, then it kind of doesn't matter what you do on stage. They are coming out to participate in live performance and they trust you. And for me, that's my, that's been my goal. But, um, I'm curious for you as a teacher now that you're three years in, have you seen, have there been students that like, what's your alumni classes doing now? Like how, have you been tracking them? Yeah. So like I said, this year was our first year of taking undergrads. Um, usually we had just done high schoolers before. So so many of them are still in high school. Did you cap it on the top end? Like how old our folks. Yeah. Just like, if, I mean, we didn't, we didn't give like a specific age. Okay. I think we might've said 25 just in case people took like a gap year or something, but it was really like the oldest is you could have just graduated from undergrad. Got it. Okay. Um, so I think our oldest student was actually 25, mm. maybe 24. I don't remember. Okay. Um, but yeah, so it was like about a 10 year age span and it, you know, also various experience levels. Um, but doing it online actually was, was kind of amazing. Um, and it, it made it really accessible. Like we had students from Australia tune in mm-hmm. um, and from, from a couple countries in Asia as well um, and Canada. So it's, it's really great. Um, and I forget what your question alumni. was. Alumni. What are your alumni? Like, alumni have you been tracking them at all? Yes. So um, most of them are still either in high school or in their like early years of undergrad. 
Um, we have had a few students who have like, uh, I have a student at Princeton who's a music composition major and at Oregon and at um, uh, Oberlin and like some, some really great music schools. I think you might know the student at Princeton. Her name's Emily Liu, Lucian. Okay. Um, but yeah, keep it, keep an eye out. I will keep great. an eye. I mean, uh, how long has she been at Princeton? This She'll have done two years, I guess. No. How do you spell her last name? L-I-U-S-H-E-N. Okay. It rings a bell, but I don't know that we've crossed paths in the steel. I mean, yeah. Anyway, well, I, I will keep my eyes peeled. Yeah. Um, but no, we have, so we have a good amount of students who are, and we actually had um, Quinn Harley, who just graduated from SUNY Purchase, I think, um, who did like an accelerated music degree. So we have a couple of students who have, who have graduated, um, but most of them are still kind of figuring it out, you mm-hmm. know, like they're, they're young. Um, but I keep in touch. I send them opportunities all the time. They send me like, this is a piece that I just wrote. Like, what do you think? Um, or can you offer me some advice on, on this application or write me a recommendation letter? So I'm still in touch with many of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've had a couple students come back as well. Um, like, you know, from year to year. Yeah. Do you have, um, do you help ha- have any of them started to apply for college or like where you, do they come to you for help with applications and things like that? Yeah. Yeah, I had, um, I mean, just recently we had a student who came to me um, who is now going to start, I think, at U, at, at uh, Northwestern. She'll be starting, um, her name's Sophia Schiffer, she's a really wonderful student um, who came to us really wanting to do music composition, but kind of torn between doing that or engineering. And so now she's starting a double degree Whoa, this fall. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, in composition and engineering. And I, I wrote her recommendation letter, and she ended up using her performance from last year's camp. Uh, as, as a part of her portfolio. And she also came back this summer. And so she got another piece with us done. That's awesome. I mean, this is, um, for, I mean, I, I don't know how many young, you know, female or non-binary students between the ages of 13 and 25 listen to my podcast, but I don't know. I'm going to guess my demographic is not, not necessarily that, but sadly, but, but I will say if there's anybody listening to this, I, you know, I'm biased because I know you and I, you're, you're, you're anytime Kim, Tom, or Kim Wildchesky says you should reach out to this person. I just, I don't even care if you've killed my dog. I'm sort of like, whatever, you must be the best. So, um, I, I can't, I can't recommend you, um, and your festival enough. Um, and where, so for folks who want to, you know, maybe are listening to this and, and want to like, you know, maybe they're 10 and they're like baby Aaron and they were writing pieces when they were eight. If they were interested in this, uh, first off, where can they find out information about your camp? And then secondly, are there any other opportunities or any other festivals or places where you would recommend that they they look to, if not your festival? Sure. So um, they can find out information at our website, which is youngwomencomposers.org. Um, and also we're on Instagram and Facebook as well. We're pretty active on social media. Um, if they're 10, um, that's definitely a little too young, I think, to to really be a part of the community. It's not even really about ability. Like I said, it's more about, um, yeah, community aspect, maturity levels, um, experience, like life experience levels, not even musical. Um, so that's why we try to keep it, you know, high school, like 14, 13 yeah. as a minimum. But um, there are some other festivals out there for young kids like that. I'd suggest looking at the local level is probably your best bet, like day camps. There are a lot of youth orchestras, especially if you live in a city, there's most likely going to be some kind of program 
um, for composition or at least like a university that you can reach out to to get like a couple lessons with a student or a, even a graduate student or a professor there. Mm-hmm. That would be my, my tip for that. Um, there are a good amount of other composition festivals. Most of them are kind of expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one thing that we really wanted to focus on with, with our camp is to make sure it's financially accessible. What does it cost? Uh, so we, we charge 700 for tuition this year. We charge 350 because mm-hmm. it was, you know, reduced. Um, that doesn't include if you, if you need housing, right. like that's yeah. not inclusive in the cost because we don't have any control over that. That's temple that says that, mm. um, but tuition for two weeks is 700. Um, but, uh, Missy Mazzoli has a really great program called Luna labs and Alan Reed. Um, so that's, that's a more selective program. You say lunar um, labs, L U N A R. Uh, without the R. Luna, Luna excuse me. Okay. Luna Sorry. labs. Yeah. Really great program, smaller, but year round mentorship program. Mm. Um, where you receive private lessons and you get some pieces read and you go to New York at the end. And, and oh, cool. it seems like a great program. Missy's I great. I was in school. I was in school with Missy. She's the right. real deal. Yeah. She's great. Yeah. Yeah. She's wonderful. Um, she was, as you know, our first guest composer. Um, and I think you have to be 13 for her program. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, my, my suggestion for young kids is to look to your local youth orchestra or university um, to just like check out what they have. A lot of times there'll be programs you're not, um, aware of that exists for composition or you can express your interest in a performance program say like hey can my kid like compose for this so so i don't think it really hurts to to make it known that there's a need if there isn't one in your in your community because hmm. um, really all that you need is like some performers who are willing to read your piece right. so it's not a really difficult thing to add to a to an existing festival. Do you have like, you need to start like an alumni association to your festival of like people who are, who are willing to be like, just like, this is the, the, you know, YWCC, um, alumni page. If you need anything, here's a database of like, I don't know, whoever wants to volunteer their email address, like 50 people, past alums. And like, you can just email any of them anytime about anything you need composition related. Like, I, I think, there's the representation of just seeing faces and, and making sure like seeing people that look like you and giving you that perception. Oh, I can do this. But then then there's the other step of being like talking to those people and realizing that those people aren't composers living in a cave. Like all those alums are not just these disjointed sort of figures like floating out in the ether. No, they're people just like you and they probably live right down the street. They're probably still just as insecure as you are as a person in a composer. They probably still feel like an imposter just like you and me do even though we're now farther along i mean you're running a festival and i'm gonna guess you feel like just as much an imposter as i do 12 years into soci you know like yeah definitely (laughs) i mean jennifer hakeman was one of our guest composers last year who's like one of the most recognized composer names like female or not just like writing today Mm -hmm. and she came and talked to our students and was like yeah every time i go to start a new piece i'm just like oh man i think i've written all of my pieces already like i don't know where what i'm gonna do and i think that made a huge impact on our students and also on me to be like no matter how far you get up the ladder you still have that like insecure voice and it's only quieted with like time but it's never gone you know yep i i look at david lang a lot and i think like he's a he's a composer who he has a few ideas but he will steal from himself from older pieces and just sort of like yeah. change one note and be like, see, it's new. <laughs> and I'm just like every composer, if you just felt better about that, people would feel less worried about running out of ideas. Like just steal one, steal your phrase and change one note. And there you go. You're it's good. Still your music. It's still, I mean, you have total control over yeah, that. That's could, one of the like, 
techniques that I actually recommend is like, if you're stuck, just go to an old piece and try and like take a section and then do something different with it. Plagiarism is fine if it's yourself. Exactly. You can plagiarize yourself. <laughs> right. You just can't do it with other, you, you just can't do it with other people. <laughs> well, Aaron, we're coming up on an hour here and I, 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 you know, it's an hour you'll never get back. So I apologize for wasting your time, but <laughs> no, it's, it's not been a waste of mine. I, I really appreciate talking to you and, um, your presence and your students' presence at SOCI the last three years. Um, you know, this last year, of course, this year was awesome to have you all on the Zoom screen, but it's not lost on me. The vibe of the room changes when your crew, you, you called them a cohort earlier, when they, when, yeah. your, when your cohort flocks into the room, it's, it's, a, it's a crew. And I, like, it's a crew in the same way that our SOCI folks are a crew. And yeah. I, I, it says a lot about, I think, you as a person, but the way you carry yourself and... You know, no matter how old you get, I feel like you know you need a crew. Yeah. You need a crew, it's and so if important. if your festival gives any of your students any bit of a crew, even if it's one or two people for the rest of their life, I think you've done them a great service. Um, and I think the the representation stuff that I think I trust and I believe is going to be a fifteen year seed that you're planting. We'll check in in twenty thirty five and do this podcast again. And okay. I'll still be wearing this sea hat, but um, this will all be yeah. gray. Um, and I would bet my life savings that stuff won't be fixed, but it'll be a hell of a lot better. Um, and I, I mean, I have to believe that otherwise, what the fuck are we doing? <laughs> you know, like yeah. if we no, don't I believe do. that, what, what are we doing? You know, I really believe that that's true. I mean, this stuff takes, takes time mm-hmm. and it only is going to be accomplished with like continued effort and opportunities and ability to connect with people. And that's like, if I could do one thing, it's just connecting people together. That's really what I want to do. I think that's an amazing mission in life, Aaron, and you're doing a really good job of it. So I, I'm really grateful to have you on the podcast. And again, my door is always open. My door is always open here. If you, if you, you know, as projects come out or you, you know, we have the UPenn thing coming up this coming year and we've been, you know, we, there's other things in the, in the, in the works here. And I know we've been sort of scheming on the side about doing something more formal with SOCI and, and YWCC yeah. and we can continue to scheme. Um, but, yes. <laughs> but, uh, I, I'm really, really proud of what you're doing there. I mean, why am I proud? Like I had anything to do with it. I'm psyched about what you're doing there, Aaron. And I'm proud to call you a friend. That's what I was, was trying to say. Um, oh, same to you, Josh. <laughs> well, I will as org. Is that correct? Yes. All right. I will. Uh, we'll post that website with uh, with the podcast. And um, is there any final words before we let you go? No. Thank you so much for having me. This was really nice. It was great to talk to you. It was great to talk to you too. I miss people. I, I miss, know. I'm... I still think we should just get outside and like play some steel drum cello duets. All right. All right. We were going to do it earlier, and it didn't seem right. But you know, let's let's fix. I think we could go. We could just go set up in their yard now. It's fine now. Yeah, August, September. All right. Yeah. We'll scheme about that too. All right. I love you, Aaron. Take care. Be safe. And we'll talk soon, okay? All right. Talk soon. Have a good one. See you. Bye. Okay. This podcast was brought to you by Liquid Drum. Liquiddrum.com. L-I-Q-U-I-D-R-U-M.com. Excuse me. Todd Meehan down in Waco, Texas. Teaches at Baylor that Todd Meehan does. Runs an amazing company. If you want to laugh, you want to learn a bit about percussion, check it out. Liquidrum.com. Also, Dunleavy Steel Pans. Uh, Kyle Dunleavy builds and tunes all the pans I teach and play on. So percussion and at NYU and at Princeton. You can check him out at DunleavyPans.com. That's D-U-N-L-E-A-V-Y Pans.com. Also, if you have any interest in steel pans or you don't know anything about them and want to learn more, 
you can go to paninmotion.com. My four friends, Trisha, Jerry, Kendall, and Arisha, all run an amazing advocacy organization in Brooklyn, New York, called Pan in Motion. Check them out at paninmotion.com. And finally, if you like steel drum merch, you can support another business right here in Brooklyn, New York. It's called Mango Chow. Now, Mango Chow is an amazing sort of snack food from Trinidad. I'll tell you more about that later. You should try it. Uh, but Aliandre runs an amazing company uh, called Mango Chow. I own a bunch of his shirts. They're worth it. Check them out. Okay. Uh, you can find him on Facebook, too. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. I hope you're all well, and I hope you're staying safe. Talk to you soon. Bye.